Hey, grab your Bibles. Let's turn together to Romans chapter 12. We're going to jump right in. We're looking at the last section of Romans 12 this morning, verses 14 to 21. And we really started this last Sunday. We sort of plucked out two verses, verses 15 and 16. And we, we looked at how Paul is calling us to cultivate two attitudes of the heart towards one another in the church. Two things, humility and empathy. Humility and empathy. Don't think too highly of yourselves, brothers and sisters, is what he writes. Put away your prideful thinking and devote yourself to lowly tasks and to serving people who have been flattened by life. Enter into the joy of those in the body who are celebrating and jump down into the trench with those who are suffering. And that's really been the focus of Paul's teaching in this chapter so far. From verse 3 to verse 13, he's been instructing believers like you and me on how we're to live this dynamic life of service and genuine love for one another within the church. It's been quite convicting. We spent a lot of time on this because this is what we want to be as a, as a local church. Listen to this list. Exercise your spiritual gifts, he says, for the benefit of the whole body. Not for your own ego, not for puffing yourself up, but exercise your gifts for the edification of the whole church. Be devoted to one another, he says. Give preference to one another. In other words, put other people before yourself. Be diligent and fervent in serving, he writes. Rejoice in the hope that you have together in Christ. Persevere. As one body in the midst of tribulation, pray constantly for each other. Be generous, meeting whatever needs arise in the body. And then finally, practice hospitality. Open up your lives and your homes to one another and enjoy fellowship in the local church. It's a lot. In fact, it's a pre- you step back and you go, that's a pretty daunting list of things that Paul has asked us to do in verses 3 to 13. But then you also say, really, is it? Is it that daunting? What if I told you that really doing those things that he lists here is, is simpler than we might think? Number one, realign your thinking with how God thinks. It starts there, right? Remember verse 2 in chapter 12? Be transformed, right? Why? Wow, the renewing of your mind. Realign how you think with how God thinks. Do we know what God thinks? Yeah, we have these big, thick books in our laps, don't we? So realign your thinking with scripture. Number two, take on a posture of selflessness. This is so important. Putting others as the priority. So if you renew your thinking and then you put on selflessness and third, you let the spirit of God work through you, you're going to see fruit produced in your life. The very fruits we see in verses 3 to 13. Now that seems like a pretty simple formula that you see on the screen. All it requires, and here's the challenging part, is that you and I put to death our pride. Anybody got that figured out yet? Putting to death our pride so that we stop being self-absorbed, we stop being self-infatuated, and we stop being self-exalting. And imagine for a moment, here at Oak Hill, if all 200 or so of our members and attenders all did these things simultaneously, together. All these things shown in verses 3 to 13, with a a renewed mind, a heart of selflessness, and all driven by the Holy Spirit. What a dynamic, life-altering, Christ-exalting, 
world-changing church would we become? And so as you imagine that, take a snapshot in your mind of how beautifully Christ has designed his church. Remember, it's his body. How beautifully we're designed. How beautifully he has made it to function when we're all playing our roles. How exquisite the church is when we're all doing our part to contribute to the overall health and flourishing of the body. And it's my goal, and I I hope you'll join me in this, that as long as God gives me breath in my lungs, as long as he doesn't move me on uh, or call me home, my goal is to help this church strive to that end, that we would become the exquisite picture that we see of the local church in Scripture. Amen? Now, that was last Sunday. Today, as we look at verses 14 to 21 again, we're going to see Paul broaden his scope beyond just the church and to speak about the outside world as well, unbelievers. So here's some key questions just to get your heart and mind going this morning. Number one, what's our posture supposed to be towards those outside the church? What's our posture supposed to be, especially towards those who are enemies, persecutors of the church? Are we supposed to fight them? Are we supposed to condemn them and curse them or something else? Now, I don't have to tell you that we live in turbulent times. You see it all around you, right? There's so much ugliness in our world. There are so many things happening in our culture today that obviously is against everything that we believe. We see it every time we look outside. And it's beginning to feel pretty hopeless, isn't it? We're beginning to look around and say, I don't know if we ever get it back. Conflict and division are the order of the day. Everything is so politicized, right? We see this constant tribalizing of groups by by all kinds of categories, gender and race and nationality. And, and we're, we're, we're building silos where we, we now shake our fists at one another or we, we punch each other or we use words that are, pain, that are, that are wounding on, on purpose in order to hurt one another. And something tells us that we as Christ followers, we're to be different, right? We, we can't get sucked into that culture that is spiraling down the drain right now. But how easy is it? Let's be honest to pick up a newspaper or to turn on cable news or to hop on Twitter and find ourselves very quickly angry at what we see happening. Angry at all kinds of people, categories of people that seem to be opposed to everything that we believe. We, we get on there, we, we see uh, the news show or we read Twitter, or we get on social media and we feel this frustration bubbling up within us. So here's where I'm going with this. We know how beautiful the church is from the inside because it's Jesus' body. Here's a key question. Can the church be beautiful to those on the outside? Can the church be beautiful to those on the outside? Is there a posture that we can adopt as followers of Jesus, an attitude of our hearts? Is there any action that we can take that would show the unbelieving world how beautiful it is in here in the local church where Jesus rules and reigns? Maybe we're going to see it here in our passage for this morning. So let's look at it. Beginning in verse 14. Are you all there? That was a long introduction. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, I think it's possible to make the case that this teaching shows us the most profound level of renewed thinking and transformed attitude that we can exhibit as a people. Think of this for a second. Everybody talks about love today, right? Every religion preaches love. But this is what makes us stand out. How we treat those who hate us. How we treat our enemies. That we would bless them and serve them and seek to be at peace with those who hate us rather than cursing them and rejecting them and seeking vengeance. This is precisely what can make you and I shine like stars in a dark, dark world and make Jesus' body, the church, beautiful to those on the outside. Now, having said all that, here's my admission for this morning, and I know my wife is waiting for me to say this. I'm not very good at it. I am not very good at this teaching. The way I was raised, the values that were instilled in me by my parents who were not believers, I was not taught any of this. In fact, I was taught quite the opposite. Don't get mad, get even. I was taught that if somebody starts a fight, you finish it. If somebody slaps you, you punch. I was taught all of those things deeply ingrained in my soul. And so this is a huge struggle for me. Even as I ask the Lord to change me from top to bottom, from inside out, this continues to be a struggle for me. And so my study time this week was filled mostly with, honestly, just sitting back and reading uh, the stories of, of other men who are much more gracious than me, who are much more loving than me, much more kingdom-minded than I am, to my shame. And so I have to tell you, I've learned a ton this week. And more than ever, the conviction of my heart is this is a huge area of needed growth in my life. So as I preach this today, and it's going to be heavy, I want you to know that I am in the same boat. Maybe you're in the same boat as I am, and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm high on the justice scale, which means I want to see justice right now. If you're in that same boat with me, then I hope we can learn together, and that together we can move towards being more transformed and more Christ-like. Amen? So let's lay a foundation for Paul's teaching here. There's two important aspects of it, what I would call the heart of it, and then what I would call the hands of it. Okay? Always heart leads to hands, right? We got what, what we believe with all of our heart, and that usually translates, should translate into how we live that out with our hands. So let's start with the foundation in the heart. Verse 14, here's the heart of the matter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now notice that in this short verse, this command presupposes that we will be persecuted. There doesn't seem to be any doubt in there, right? We will be persecuted. And as Americans, we, we struggle with this. You know why? Because we were born with this idea that we have these long, this long list of, of inalienable rights, civil rights, right, that are deeply, deeply ingrained in who we are. And we take for granted that not only should those rights exist, but they should be protected at all costs. And when somebody comes along and violates those things, we get 
outraged. How dare they hate us? How dare they persecute us? It causes outrage. Well, keep in mind that those same human and civil rights were not assumed in the first century when the New Testament was being written. Remember that Christianity was born in the context of a dictatorship. For 300 years, there was absolutely no legal protection for Christians. And so to be converted from paganism to Christianity, to declare publicly Jesus is Lord, was putting your life at risk. And so completely contrary to us, the common expectation of an early Christ follower was not to have his rights protected, but for him to have no rights at all and to be persecuted by everyone. Think about that. So we hear Peter's voice ringing in our ears in 1 Peter 4 when he says, don't be surprised at the trial that's come upon you as if there were something strange. Expect to be persecuted. Expect to be hated. But the promise remains, even today, we're going to be persecuted. Now, how might this look in our day, today, in America? What does it practically look like to be persecuted as a Christian and who is our enemy? Well, that's going to look different depending on your context. If you're a Christian living in India, the enemy might be some radical Hindus who are seeking to confiscate your Bibles and burn them and maybe burn your house down. If you're a Christian living in Nigeria, it might be Boko Haram who's seeking to slaughter you in the name of Allah. If you're a Christian living in China, your persecutor would most likely be the government that seeks to force you to conform with the government-sanctioned religion, and if you refuse, will send you off to a labor camp for re-education. Here in America, of course, it's not quite that severe. For us, it might be, well, I'm, I've been sort of ostracized at work. People found out I'm a Christian, and now I'm ignored, or I'm not treated nicely. Maybe you're being made fun of at family gatherings. You feel very alone amongst family. I'm the only Christian, and I get, I get ridiculed. Maybe a university professor might call you out in class and make fun of your faith in front of other people, other people laughing at you. If you're a business owner, it might mean that you get targeted by a lawsuit. Those are the types of things that we face. But I want you to think more widely on this because some of you guys, you hear that and you go, well, that doesn't, none of that happens to me. So I want you to think more widely in this. When we read that word persecute, our minds usually goes to one of the scenarios I just mentioned. But the meaning in the Greek is broader than that. The verb here for persecute, dioko, can refer to simple harassment or mistreatment or just plain hostility against you. Now, we've all felt that, right? Harassment, hostility, mistreatment. So, in your mind right now, I want you to think, who has or is currently mistreating you? Who is or has, has been hostile towards you? Who is your, per your persecutor? Think about that in your mind. It could, be a, it could be your husband who is very demeaning towards you. It could be a disrespectful teenager living in your house. It could be a parent who divorced or walked away from you when, when you were young, when you felt like you needed them most. It could be a boss or a teacher who is overly critical of your work but then shows favoritism to, to other people at work or other students in the class. It might be a coworker who's openly hostile to you for some reason, you're not really sure why, they're just openly hostile towards you. It could be your in-laws who've never really accepted you into their family. It could be a former boyfriend or girlfriend who's treated you poorly. Someone from your past who's done harm to your career or cheated you financially. Maybe there's somebody in your life right now, and guess what? It might even be somebody in the church 
who has said insensitive things to you over and over again, and they don't seem to be getting the hint that they're hurting you. There's all kinds of ways that we can feel harassed or mistreated out there in the world. Now, here's the question as you process that in your mind and make it personal. In your heart, have you blessed that person or have you cursed them? Have you blessed them or have you cursed them? I'm not talking about just lip service here for the sake of external appearances. Oh, yeah, I bless them. I'm talking about genuinely in your heart, you've blessed them. Now, let me define that so that we understand what we're talking about here. In a very simple sense, cursings and blessings are pronouncements that we make. Whether it's with the mouth or it's just a a, a decision in the heart, we pronounce uh, something related to the future well-being of these people around us. So cursing expresses our desire that bad things come to them. And blessing expresses our desire that good things come their way. So in terms of your persecutors... Your enemies, is it your true desire that their future be filled with nothing but happiness and success? Or, as I mentioned last Sunday, do you hope that their future is filled with misery and suffering? And if you're honest, you might say, look, I I, I am not going to weep with those people because they're getting exactly what they deserve. I'm glad they're suffering. I hope it gets more miserable for them. By the way, we never say that on the outside, do we? But we do in our hearts. Paul says, no. No, you're not to be like that. Don't do it. Bless and don't curse. Now, this seems like a radical teaching for us, but we can't even imagine how radical this teaching was for somebody living in first century Rome, even more so. And Paul wasn't the first to teach this, by the way. Earlier in the service, we read from the Sermon on the Mount, right, in our call to worship. Listen again to how Jesus describes those who would be his blessed disciples. Listen to this. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek and the merciful, the the pure in heart and the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I have to be honest, when I read that, and I read it over and over last night, I have a hard time seeing the typical American evangelical in that description. The meek, the merciful, the peacemaker, the poor in spirit. Is that us? and, And I'll be honest, I find sometimes myself, I don't fit that description. That doesn't describe me. But it should. Later in the same sermon, Jesus gets even more explicit. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist one who is evil. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He points out the very thing I just mentioned. Everybody talks about love. It's easy to love people who love you. What makes us shine as stars in a dark world is that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Super convicting, isn't it? Paul's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done. Do you remember how he describes his work in Corinth? He says this, To this present hour, we're hungry and we're thirsty and we're poorly clothed and we're roughly treated. And we're homeless, he says. We toil working with our hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to reconcile. So what would persecution look like today? 
Uh, I read, uh, this is so great. Sometimes when you're working on a sermon, something happens like a day or two before you preach and you go, boom, perfect illustration. Not often, but it happened this week. On Friday, uh, on some of the major news sites, there was a story about, um, and this is again, two days ago, a guy who works for the Village Church. You guys know the Village, Matt Chandler is the pastor, big church in Texas. He was blatantly discriminated against. Here's, here's what the article said. A design conference in Texas pulled a Christian speaker from its roster after a local group threatened to pull out of the conference because he was speaking. David Rourke is his name. He's the communications director for the Village Church. He was uninvited from what's called the Circles Conference, a three-day event for graphic designers and user experience designers for this reason, because of his religious views. He was pulled. The Dallas-Fort Worth chapter of something called AIGA, I don't know what that is. Maybe Ricardo does. <laughs> Refused to partner with the Circles Conference if Rourke was on the roster. So this influential group of designers said, if he speaks, we're gone. The group said that the church has, quote, openly discriminatory policies and practices towards women and the LGBTQ community and therefore did not meet its standards of inclusion. Irony check. Quote, we, we feel it would be hypocritical for us to be involved in the conference and tacitly endorse the policies of the village church, said the local AIGA chapter. Conference officials agreed to remove Rourke from the roster. Ismail Bersiaga, a founder of the group, was pleased with that, saying that the conference aims to create a safe space for everyone. Except Christians. How do you respond to that? If you're David Rourke, how do you respond to that? Do you expect persecution like that? Peter says, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised? As if something strange were happening. Before I read his response on Twitter, can you guess what the comment section of that article looked like? <laughs> you guys read the comment sections on news sites? Talk about the depravity of man. It is the ugliest, nastiest place you'll... Don't go there. Just forget I even said it. The language in support of this guy, David Rourke, critical of the conference, was utterly abusive. Full of accusations. And by the way, not logically wrong. Much of what was being pointed out was logically right, but in tone and tenor, absolutely disastrous. Filled with cursing, not blessing. But that's our culture today. Nasty. Now, here's how Rourke responded on Twitter. He said, quote, Yesterday I was removed as a speaker at the Circles Conference. I have no hard feelings towards AIGA or Circles, only love. I understand this was a complex situation, and the last thing that I want to do is cause a problem or be a distraction. I believe to that end, division in, I believe that to end division and purity and, and achieve unity in our world, we have to be willing to listen well, enter into dialogue, and understand that we can show love, honor, and dignity to one another while still disagreeing. I don't think that happened here, but I have hope that it can happen. Now, as Twitter responses go, that's a pretty good start. 
And, and I'm, I, I immediately when I saw that, I prayed that he might have more opportunities to take the next step in, in, in dialoguing with these folks and, 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 and showing them that they not only had discriminated against, against him, but that he wanted to open the door to an actual gospel conversation. What he did was give up his rights and be humble. How many of you guys like that idea? You get persecuted, you get discriminated against, and you say, you know what? I'm going to give up my rights. It's okay. I expect it as a follower of Jesus. And stay humble. Opening the door then, according to God's sovereignty, to a gospel conversation. That's the goal, folks. How easy is this? Not very. Not if you're like me on the justice scale. Not easy at all. So let's move to verse 17 then and see where this posture of the heart then takes us. By the way, quick caveat before I go on, um, because you always have to be careful in these things. Blessing your persecutor doesn't extend to remaining in an unsafe environment where physical harm could come to you. So let me just say that out loud. In a case like that, you need to get to a safe place and get help and get wise counsel. And then once you're safe, once you're out of that, that place where you could be physically harmed, then we can talk about then how to bless and not curse. But just as a caveat. And if you have questions about that, the elders are always here to answer. Because here, here's what happens when you do a general teaching on a subject like this. You can come up with a million different unique situations. And they, a lot of them require wisdom and discernment. So, but that's why you have an elder team that can help you sort through those things. Okay, verse 17. And this really is one of the great warnings in this passage. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Do you see that? To anyone. There's not any wiggle room there for, well, sometimes you can be evil. Sometimes you can pay back with evil. No, not to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved. So in these two verses, the the one that's on the receiving end of the persecution is now challenged in how he responds to being mistreated. Is his response going to be marked by evil? Or a desire for revenge? Will the one persecuted go beyond just wishing that somebody suffer? Or words that I hope he suffers, but actually take action to make sure they suffer for having mistreated him? Paul says, if we've renewed our thinking, and according to verse 9, he says that we abhor everything that's evil and cling to what is good, then true Christian love, love that's genuine without hypocrisy, will not retaliate will not retaliate. It will not respond to sin with sin. That's important. True Christian love will never... And by the way, this works in parent-child relationships. It works in, in marriage situations. We don't respond to sin with more sin. True Christian love will not practice evil in order to pay back someone for the evil that they've done to us. Make sure you understand this, folks. Paul's not talking about justice here. By the way, next week we get into chapter 13 of Romans. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about the state and their responsibility for meeting out justice. That's next week. But today we're looking at the concept of revenge. We're talking about a vigilante spirit where we take matters into our own hands and we jump into God's chair and we say, I'm going to make darn sure that this wrong is righted. Never. Paul says. What's at the root of that? Our pride? 
Just like last week, we talked about the various types of pride. It's our pride, our hyper-focus on self. Well, I've been wounded. Well, I feel like I'm a victim here. I need to restore my honor. And if we're honest, we'll admit in our flesh that, you know what, it feels really good if we take a little shot to deliver one harder back. Not to be so, says Paul. When we engage in revenge, what we do is we end up inciting more hostility. And we play a role in this ever-growing cycle of sin. Right? Think about the feuds that we know of between families or tribes across the world or this people group versus that people group. How we all can jump into that cycle of violence and sin and perpetuate it rather than stop it. Because we answer sin with more sin. You do this, and so I respond with that. Then you lash out, and I strike back harder. You say something mean, and I find a way to say something even more mean. So that I can wound you more than I've been wounded. And on and on it goes. Folks, this is not overcoming sin. This is us being overcome by sin. Do not take revenge. Now, I realize that that flies in the face of all of our fleshly inclinations, right? We want our pound of flesh. We want to see justice done. And we want to make sure that our offenders feel just as bad as we feel, if not worse. But the Christian has been saved by God not to continue in sin, but to demonstrate the righteousness of God in every little choice and every little decision that he makes. That's our calling. We're to live by God's standards, not the flesh. We're to live not naturally, but supernaturally. And we have the spirit within us to carry that out. We have the power within us to actually do it. Now, there's so many stories that I can tell. And you guys know some of these stories, especially from the mission field, of people that in the power of the Holy Spirit have responded to mistreatment and persecution in ways that's almost, it's almost unbelievable. You may know the story of a, a missionary named Graham Staines. Back in 1999, he and his two sons, they were 10 and 6 at the time. They were mobbed by radical Hindus. They were trapped inside of their vehicle in a town called Orissa in India. Trapped in their car by a mob and the car was set on fire and they all burned to death. A father and two little children. And what makes that so hard to believe is that Graham and his wife had invested 34 years in ministering in that town. He was head of the leprosy unit in the local hospital. All he did was serve other people. And they burned him alive because he loved Jesus. He left behind his widow, Gladys, and one daughter. And everyone expected that they would immediately go back to their home in Australia. But no, Gladys was convinced that God had called them to India. And she said, I will not leave my post. India is my home, she said. And I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter. Neither am I angry. But I do have one great desire. That every citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn the hatred among us, she said, and instead spread the flame of Christ's love. Wow. In spite of such a heinous act, she refused to curse and she refused to call for revenge. Five years later, Gladys Staines was described by a national publication as the best-known Christian in India since Mother Teresa. 
And her ministry continues today to the poor and to the lepers in that town. Could you do it? Do you trust that the Spirit would give you the power to live out these commands? Now, the second half of verse 19 is the key to helping us find the power to turn away from revenge. Look at, look at verse 19. It says, Never take your own revenge, beloved. Underline this next phrase. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So catch this now. Catch the, the distinction here. Revenge is the wrath of man. It's man's attempt to execute judgment on another man. And that is a place and a prerogative that belongs only to God. So God is dishonored when we do that. Our wrath doesn't bring justice because it's imperfect. It's not righteous. It doesn't make anything righteous. In fact, James says this. He says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Amen and amen. Does that mean there's never going to be justice? See, here's what, here's what we tend to think if we don't understand the word. Well, you know what? The wicked are going to prosper and we just have to suck it up. You know, that's just life. We suck it up. Bad people get, you know, get good stuff and we get persecuted. That's not what the Bible says. That is not correct. Hear me on this. And be encouraged. God has spoken on this matter many times over in the word. And he promises to establish perfect justice someday. He's promised to right every wrong. To avenge every wound and every dishonor. And he's promised to execute his wrath upon every wicked person who refuses to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Do you believe him? Every sin will be accounted for. Every careless word, every wrong thought, every wrong deed will be accounted for. Every single one of those things will be punished. And there's two choices on who will absorb that punishment, right? Either the sinner himself for all eternity or that list of sins, which is so long for each one of us, will be absorbed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. Those are the two choices. We believe this by faith, right? That every single sin will be accounted for and punished by the sinner or by Jesus. We believe that by faith. And so we wait patiently for the blessing, not only of our ultimate salvation, right, when Jesus calls us home, but we also wait patiently for his wrath to be poured out so that all things can be made right. We wait patiently. And so we resist the temptation of the flesh to now take revenge against that persecutor or that enemy who's mistreated you. And we lay down that burden, we give it over to the one who can handle it, and we wait patiently on him. But it will be done. True? That helps us get through this, right? When you're mistreated, that helps us. The Spirit reminds us that God will handle this one day. Everything will be made right. Now, let me share a warning with you that goes hand in hand with that teaching. We know that God will have his vengeance but listen, this is how subtle the human heart is. That doesn't mean that we can sit there and rub our hands and go, ooh, good. Yeah, God's going to get him. <laughs> right? Like, like we're going to have some, some quiet hatred in our heart, feeling pretty darn good that someday God is going to come and zap. Is that the right heart? This teaching is not designed to be a subtle way of getting our revenge after all. It's a way of giving over vengeance to the one who's qualified to meet it out. 
It's taking a deep breath and feeling like now at last I can, I can lay that down because it'll be handled. And when I lay that down and I don't hold that grudge and I don't feel like I, I have to meet that out, guess what? Now I'm free to love. Now I'm free to be gracious towards people and to be compassionate and empathetic towards people. That's where, guys, that is where freedom comes, right? From laying that stuff down and saying, the Lord will repay. Some of you may be aware of John Piper's testimony in this regard, in his life. In 1974, his mother was killed in Israel by a drunk driver. He was 28 at the time. There was this van that was filled with drunk Israeli soldiers driving down the street. They swerved into the lane where Mr. and Mrs. Piper were driving, and his mom was instantly killed. Marked his life. And here's what he wrote years later. He said, quote, As a tribute to the mighty mercy of God, I bear witness in my heart, I do not hate those soldiers. I don't wish them evil. In fact, it occurred to me that today they're probably about my age, maybe a little younger. And if any of them were reached with the gospel and believed in Christ, I would count it a great joy to be with them in heaven forever. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I'm happy to leave it to him. This I commend to you is a wonderful way to live. This is freedom, and in that freedom, there are great open spaces for love. What a great lesson in a really difficult situation. And to that end, I present to you verse 20. I think this is the hardest part of the entire teaching. Look at verse 20. This is where the heart leads to the hands. This is where the heart of the matter, if you'll accept that as true, leads to practical action. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry... Ignore him. No, feed him. If he's thirsty, laugh at him. No, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. So, so this takes mercy to a whole new level, doesn't it? It's not just leaving vengeance to God and walking away. Like, okay, that's over. That's good, but that's only part of the picture. It's going a step further, actually helping the one who's mistreated you. Oh, come on, Jeff. Seriously? Helping the guy that treats me so poorly? Serving the person who persecutes me? I mean, does this feel like too much? Does this feel too big? Like, uh-uh. I mean, Jeff, I was with you till that point, but this is a step too far. Well, let's back up and, and get some perspective on this. Here's a true statement that I think we always need to keep in mind. You ready? Lost and wounded people wound others. True? Lost and wounded people often wound others. That coworker who insults you, why is she such a miserable person? Have you ever asked the question, why? I mean, I wonder what's going on in her life that causes her to be so miserable. That boss who acts arrogantly and puts you down all the time, what is going on in his life that causes him to act out in that way? What, what kind of pain is he going through? That father who never showed you love or walked away when you needed him most, what kind of pain was happening in his life that caused him to take that step? So what happens when we set aside our pride and we empathize with our persecutor? We enter into the pain of the one who mistreats us. What happens when we walk a mile in those sandals and we see and feel the pain that our persecutor is dealing with, and we consider his burden, 
especially when we take into consideration that he's lost and without Christ, how does that affect the way we respond? If your persecutor or your enemy is lost and without Christ, shouldn't that affect the way we respond to him or her? What can happen when we bless the unbeliever instead of cursing him? What can happen when we, like the good Samaritan, tend to the wounds of our enemy rather than kicking him when he's down? Paul says here in verse 20 that when we serve our enemy, we, we heap burning coals on his head. That's a, isn't that a weird thing? Scholars have looked at that. We're not exactly sure culturally where that comes from, and there's some disagreement on what it means, but I look at the context, and to me it's really clear. Your kindness to your persecutor in the face of hostility has the potential to bring repentance about in his life. I can guarantee you this, if you respond in kind with evil, he won't see Jesus at all. Or he'll see Jesus in a much more negative light. But if you respond differently according to what Paul's saying here in verse 20, God just might use your words and your attitude as a way to bring that person to repentance. Think about that. Your mercy would illustrate to him God's mercy. And in that situation, you become the hands and feet of Jesus. They may never see Jesus more clearly than in that moment that God gives you to respond differently. Remember this, brothers and sisters. God once reconciled you to himself when you were his enemy. When you hated him, he reconciled you to himself. You deserve wrath, but instead you were shown grace. And now, now you have the reason and the power to be gracious towards those who persecute and hate you. Now, does this teaching mean that you have a guarantee that if you're just kind to unbelievers, it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce repentance and, and your unbeliever is going to go, oh, the scales have fallen from my eyes and I want to repent and how do I be saved? And it becomes a Hallmark movie where you become friends forever? no. We don't have that guarantee. It's been pointed out many times over that not even Jesus himself in his teaching brought everybody to repentance. So we can't think that we can do it, right? I mean, how many of the two thieves trusted in Christ? That Jesus was one out of two on that one, right? Peter repented, but Judas went and hanged himself, okay? The centurion declared that's the son of God, the Pharisees said, good riddance. Okay, so not everybody that even Jesus taught came to repentance. That's according to his sovereignty, right? So there's no guarantees, but still this is our calling to be faithful to the command, feed your enemy, give him a drink, overcome evil with good. Because of what Jesus has done for us in laying down his life for his enemies, we ought to be willing to lay down our lives to see unbelievers come to know Christ. Are you willing to lay down your life to see people come to know Jesus? Listen, missionaries have been doing this for centuries, haven't they? Risking life and limb, risking their lives and the lives of their family to go across the sea, across the world, to potentially die to see people come to know Jesus. Are we not missionaries in our community? In the harvest field that God has given us right here in Santa Clarita, Los Angeles? Are we not called to be ambassadors for the gospel here? If so, feed your enemy. Give him a drink. Show him the same mercy that you've received from Jesus. Amen? I'll close with this final thing. Let me come back to this question. Can the church 
Be beautiful to those on the outside. Look at the middle of verse 17 and then look at verse 18. Look at our responsibility in these verses. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now really, the best translation of that first statement here is this. Give thought to what is right or honorable in the sight of all men. Plan it out. Give thought to this. Don't just react in the moment, but renew your thinking so that when those moments happen and you're, you're the recipient of hostility, plan what your response might be. Give it careful consideration. Why? Why? So that we respond in a Christ-like manner. Now, what this doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that we base our beliefs and our actions on public opinion, right? Because public opinion often runs contrary to God's word. What he means is that in our reactions, we need to give careful consideration to what our testimony looks like. What is our testimony before the world? Will those on the outside of the church think that when they see Christ followers responding to persecution, that our reaction is going to impact them in a way where they go, huh, that's interesting. I didn't expect that. This, by, by the way, you know this reaction of not revenge and feeding your enemy? That is completely unexpected in our culture today. If you want to stand out in your world, live this out. And watch the outside world go, huh, I did not expect that. We're to consider our actions and our reactions. Are they right and honorable and lovely? Are they beautiful those, to those who don't know Christ? Listen, when the world sees a Christian rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, when a, the world sees a Christian carried away with doing lowly things and serving people who've been flattened by life, when a Christian refuses to repay evil for evil but blesses instead, those things are lovely and beautiful in the eyes of the world. They will draw people to your testimony. They will draw people to the Savior. I think of one particular ancient writing from a pagan teacher named Lucian. He lived in the second century AD. Here's what he admitted about Christians. He said, it's incredible to see their fervor with which these people help others in need. They spare nothing. Their leader has put into their heads that they're all brothers. That's an actual quote from a second century pagan. He can't believe the way Christians acted. It's part of our calling to make the pagans of this world notice our love and admit that we live a beautiful life under King Jesus. That's part of our calling. And not only that we love each other inside the church, but we love people outside the church as well. Ooh, this is where it gets hard, right? Because everybody frustrates us so much. Stop. Stop. Love people outside the church. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Be filled with empathy and compassion and love for leftists. And socialists. And people who identify as LGBT. And desperate people who are trying to cross our borders. Show empathy and compassion. If your first reaction is a political one, you've missed it. Let your first reaction be empathy and compassion and love. This is the beautiful life that we show the world. Oh, there'll be a time to straighten out the law and what's right and wrong and under the civil law and all that. There'll be time for that. But our first reaction is love. That's the beautiful life. If at all possible, Paul writes, be at peace with all men.
all men. Now again, is there a guarantee that everybody out there wants to be at peace with you? No. Many times you're going to find as you try to live this out, people are mad at God and you represent God to them. So they're mad at you. So it may not be possible, right? The world that crucified Jesus may not love you. That's okay. You've been faithful to the command to love them well, right? And so you can dust off your sandals and move on because you've done everything that God has called you to do and ultimately he's sovereign. But that's why Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Friends, our culture is tearing apart right now. It is tearing apart at the seams. So what is your role? What role does God have for you to play in this spiritual battlefield we call Southern California? It's an important battle. In what areas of your life, in your heart and with your hands, can you grow in love for people? In what ways can we together spur one another on towards greater patience and grace and love towards the outside world? Here's the thing. We have a great Savior. We have a great message, right, for this lost world. So we may we align our thinking and our hearts with him and with that message. And may we allow him to work through us so that we might see more people come into the kingdom. Amen? Amen, amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the great challenge of this passage. Lord, I confess to you again this morning as I confess to you all day yesterday that I don't do this well. That my first reaction is not always a godly one. And I believe, Lord, that I'm not alone in this room on that. And so, Lord, will you conform us to your image? Will you give us the power by your spirit to live this out well, to grow in love and empathy and compassion, both for each other here, but also those outside these walls? May you do a great work in this body as as we seek to do these things together for the building up of your kingdom. Lord, realign our hearts and our minds with you. That's my prayer this morning. May you be glorified in this local church, even as you work through us and in us to bring us more in conformance with who you are. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.